This is Daniel Figella, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. This is where non-technical professionals stay ahead of the AI curve. If you don't want to learn to write Python, but you do want to identify high ROI AI use cases and help to shepherd those projects to deployment and to a return on investment, you found yourself in the right place. Today's episode touches on a topic that influences all industries. We try to do that with every episode, have transferable lessons. In this case, we're talking about replacement versus augmentation. A major concern for many enterprises, a major talking point for many AI vendors. We dive in this week with Emmanuel Walconier, who's the CEO of EasyOp. EasyOp has been with us on the program in the past. But today, rather than focusing mostly on use cases for EasyOp, that would be natural language generation use cases for clinical trials related and pharmaceutical related reports in the life sciences space. We're instead focusing on two core questions. Number one, how do enterprise leaders measure the success of AI programs? Right now, how many FTEs a solution might replace in terms of productivity is still a way that some managers think, but ultimately it isn't how they act. Most enterprises aren't replacing people immediately when they bring on AI solutions. We would have a lot more news about that topic if it was happening across industries, but it still happens to be how they think. So how should they be thinking? If they're not actually replacing people and they're augmenting them, what are the ways they need to think about their measurement in a new way? This is likely to be relevant for you, whether you're selling AI services or adopting them. And so that first point should be fun to unpack. And the second one is around where humans fit in in the loop. In other words, even when we can do things vastly faster, even when certain processes can be taken off the plate of humans or done with greater speed, why are humans still critical for certain kinds of workflows and certain kinds of decision-making processes? We talk about accountability and transparency and how those fit in to humans kind of being the orchestrators of AI because somebody has to be accountable. Emmanuel certainly has some strong opinions on this particular point, and he goes into them in some depth here. And we end with a little bit of where Emmanuel is seeing augmentation happen, in particular the life sciences space in this episode, but uh, many of their use cases are applicable in financial services as well. So unpacking the big picture on augmentation versus replacement is our focus today. Our sponsor of today's episode is EasyOp. If you're interested in reaching Emerge's global audience, this is our seventh or eighth month at over 100,000 downloads a month here on the AI and Business Podcast. So thank you all for helping to grow the show. If you're listening in right now and you offer AI solutions to the enterprise, you want to learn how to reach our audience, it's emerj.com slash ad1. That's ad like advertising and the number one. Or you can learn more at the end of the episode. I'll, I'll mention a little something about being able to be in touch with Emerge. It's always fun to chat with Emmanuel and this one is no exception. So let's roll right in. So Emmanuel, glad to have you back with us on the program. Hi, Dan. Nice to meet you again. Today, we're talking about augmentation rather than replacement. And there's a bunch of ideas to unpack. But the first one, as we were talking off microphone, is around how the ROI of AI is measured. I know you have mentioned that kind of FTE productivity is often the number people are looking at. But it's not really about replacing people. It's about adding human capability. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing there and how people are currently measuring the way that, you know, the, the success of these systems. That's a very good point, Dan. Most what when I discuss with customers, you know, we're you know, selling our solution to you know mostly pharma companies and large banks, financial institutions. The by default attitude is to say, okay, how many FTE are we going to reduce? You know, you are going to automate all these reports. And actually, our solution is very uh, measurable, I would say. You know, I mean, they can measure, okay, today we're taking three hours or four hours to do this report in average. And with your solution, we're 
you are going to cut that by three or, you know, you are like getting a 50% productivity gain. So they, they built their whole ROI, no of our customers, but I would say this is the by default attitude by saying, okay, we're going to cut all these FTEs. I think it's uh, what's legitimate, but it's in a, in a way wrong, in a way, you know, AI can bring way more benefits. You know, I mean, the title is, you know, of this uh, podcast is, you know, should we replace or augment? I think, you know, by default, by calculating FT reduction and so on, we're a little bit more in the, you know, in the replacement, which scares everybody and scares the people who are going to actually, you know, use the solution. Oh my God, are they going to replace me? Yeah. Why should I support this program? Or why should I, you know, uh, because they are going to replace me. The, the reality, if you want to maximize the benefits of this technology, you have to think of change. We're not going to suppress you or suppress your job. We're going to fundamentally change the way you're working so that you can be, you know, it will be a higher quality. Yes, it will be more efficient. Ultimately, you know, I'm thinking about pharma. You know, the time to market, the drug, the new drug introduction will be actually faster. And this is where the big money is. So I think a little bit, you know, is. I understand that they have to build that, you know, you know, that the finance and top management are looking for ROI based on, you know, this type of FT calculation. It's a bit of a narrow point of view in a way. I'd agree. And it, it certainly touches on points that any enterprise adopting AI has to deal with, any vendor company like yourselves have to deal with, which is, hey, is this going to get rid of my job? Of course, that's the big spook factor. Every vendor is going to talk about how they don't, you know, replace but you, you'd you also mentioned sort of that maybe companies need to think about a different way of measuring it, measuring this in terms of, you know, hey, how many FTEs will this be able to, to replace as kind of the default way of measurement feels like maybe it's not as accurate because a lot of these companies are really using this for augmentation, but they're trying to measure it based on replacement. Is there a better way companies should think about the productivity increases from AI solutions? Well, I would say the number one... Uh, one of the other measurements I know, you know, this is uh, maybe uh, a bit idealistic, but their employee satisfaction using our tool should be definitely measured. But I can tell you that we see a lot, you know, in controllership, the medical writers, their job is not very funny. You know, it's, it's a lot of heavy listings, a lot of data crunching. And one very basic measurement they should have is is your job more enjoyable? Do you work, you know, are, are you way more productive using this tool than without the tool? And many customers are actually measuring that, believe it or not. And it is for us a very important KPI because if an end user enjoys using a tool, enjoy using, you know, this type of a solution, I can tell you, the benefits will be three or four times higher than what you initially expected. Yeah, it's, it's certainly if they don't enjoy using it or they resist using it, your, your benefits may be nothing at all. So the user interface is extremely important. And you and I have had past conversations around your own journey of leveling up that important user interface. So you're, you're saying employee satisfaction is one thing. You also mentioned kind of productivity. Would you advocate that enterprise leaders maybe think about what the productivity measures are. In other words, how long does it take to produce this kind of report or whatever? Maybe it's man hours, maybe it's uh, 
number of pages that they process. I'm not exactly sure what the measures of success yeah, are. No, but that's, that's what it is. Now, the, the point is, is do you do that to reduce your staff? I think, I mean, we have to be very clear. 99% of the customer I'm meeting, they say, we want to do more. You know, our stuff is overloaded. We cannot recruit. So we want to do more. So it's a way to actually utilize, fully utilize their team to do interesting stuff and do the more. Instead of, you know, okay, we're going to reduce the team from 20 FT to 10 FT. It's never yeah. that this is going to happen. Yeah. So why to communicate a reduction? Why, in fact, it's not what they want. They want to fully maximize their team to produce two times, three times, five times more quality reports, analysis, insights, and so on with the human brains they have. Yeah. And this is what is at stake, how to maximize the utilization of the skills of their guys. I can't speak for every single enterprise to say that none of them are looking to replace certain roles. It's always going to be augmentation. But but I, I can agree with you that in many, many cases, the upside would be augmentation rather than replacing. I mean, it sounds like with your customers, that's been the case. You guys had some interesting work here, Emmanuel, where you'd actually surveyed your customers around framing things as an augmentation, potentially like versus a replacement. What were the results of that? In other words, how, how do your customers think about this augmentation kind of frame. Yeah, so we, it's a good point. We surveyed, I think, 300 of uh, senior management on, uh, you know, across various industry on the whole AI, on their workforce, how they see that and so on. Four out of five said they believe that zoos do not embrace an augmented workforce with AI will not survive. Four out of five, 80%. Huh. They said, this is for us critical. It's not just uh, nice to have. We will not survive if we do not augment our workforce with AI. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It makes, so, it makes me very good, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, well, it's, it's, it's worded in somewhat of an open-ended way, I guess. I, mean, I haven't seen the survey, but, and so it's, it's, it's open-ended enough for, I'm not sure how they defined AI, but regardless, they're, I think, aware that if we're going with human ability unaided entirely, we're probably going to go the way of the dinosaurs. And, and even though it is broad and open-ended, I would say there's certainly a lot of credence to that. And, and I imagine that survey was across various industries for you guys, because I know you're working in different spaces. Well, mostly, uh, again, financial institutions and pharma. Yep, yep. So, you know, we didn't restrict entirely to these two uh, you know, specific segments. But that's, but yeah, yeah, most, most of your audience. Um, and financial services really are targeted. Cool. And th there's certainly some of the industries that are spending the most on AI, which is also obviously good for you guys. And, and one of the many reasons why we focus a lot on those spaces, because there's so much exciting stuff going on there. So that's useful to understand. And hopefully for some of the listeners tune in, I do think FTE replacement is sort of an odd metric because most of them are not exactly going to go in and chop headcount. They really are going to be focusing on productivity improvement. So one of the important take-homes here seems to be, you know, can we define productivity improvement and can we define our user, you know, satisfaction and use those as measures of success instead of thinking FD replacement is, is the only tool in our tool belt. So I, I would certainly agree with that. You've also addressed, you know, we chatted a little bit off microphone here around people fearing that they will over rely on AI. Like again, AI will become the centerpiece and, you know, human beings will become more peripheral to the processes there's a lot to say here around transparency and accountability. What do you see as these fears of over-reliance and, and how have you kind of responded to them or thought about them? I think this is a big danger. I would say 
people are a bit black and white. Either they they are completely resistant and say, oh my God, you know, I'm going to be replaced. So we we'll talk about that. Or, you know, they believe actually both, you know, both, both issues are linked. They believe that the machine is going to do the job on their own. It's going to be, you know, I mean, I think they are a bit naively thinking, okay, you know, actually your stuff is amazing. It's a bit of magic, you know, you are creating the support automatically. So this is it. You know, I think this is a big danger. Most of our customers, you know, when we talk with them and so on, they really appreciate the fact they need to stay in control. They need absolutely, you know, well, studios is one of most, most I would say, uh, most popular uh, feature where they completely stay in control. And full transparency, you know, avoiding the black box syndrome is very, very important. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, I, I think they don't master anything anymore. And they lose uh, really the fundamental knowledge of uh, what they are doing, why they are doing that, and so on. Who, uh, you know, they have to own the, the final product in a way, and they have to understand how it is done. So there are some limitations, and we're spending a lot of time with our customers to explain the limitation, to explain what they can do, what they can expect, you know, so that you know, we deconstruct the AI myth in a way uh, and try to go very much in detail so that they really understand I control the outcome of the machine, and I can dynamically or initially do all the parameterization so that it does exactly what I want, not that the machine wants. Yeah, and, and certainly so many use cases are like this where it's really going to be close to impossible in any of these niche enterprise workflows to just unplug human beings. It really is going to be about making human beings uh, are giving them the ability to make more empowered decisions, to make more informed decisions, to act more quickly, to you know, work through their processes potentially more efficiently. But at the end of the day, somebody's accountable for the report. Somebody's responsible for the report. And it's it's not going to be anytime soon when it's a machine entirely. So I'm with you on that. But it sounds like for you guys, when you're working with a new customer, you're really spending some time and effort actually explaining that. In other words, hey, this is not a machine that becomes your boss. This is like you used to be, you know, maybe driving a donkey and now you're driving a tractor and, and it's just more power that you can use at your own hands. Is there a real process to kind of, you know, convince, cajole and train new customers on that, that philosophy? So clearly there is a training and there is a big change management to do with the end users. By the way, Dan, if I may, please, you, you say, you know, not anytime soon. In my opinion, it's never. Machine oh. will never replace. You know, I, I have this analogy with uh, Da Vinci. <laughs> this is the way we see, uh, you know, well, we're doing a lot of, of work with medical writers. Medical writers, you know, these guys have PhDs. You know, they are super educated professionals. They're looking at that and saying, you know, what, you know, there is always this fear that, uh, my God, this will never be able to replace, you know, what we do. Because basically what they do is to analyze the data from the clinical, you know, clinical trials, massive amount of data. And they have to analyze that and write the reports for the FDA to say whether or not, in their opinion, and they have to sign that, whether in their opinion, the drug is going to be effective, you know, is good to go to market or not. The way I see that, uh, I take 30 seconds for an analogy. Da Vinci, when, when he painted uh, La Joconda, you know, this masterpiece. Yes. 
he did not do that on, on, his, on his own. He had actually a team working for him, doing the background, doing the, you know, I mean, the trees, doing maybe the skies, you know, the, you know, which is basically, you know, 70% of the surface of the paintings. And he was, Da Vinci was really focused on, well, directing, of course, his team, but, you know, doing the fine, you know, doing the, the, the hands, which is one of the most difficult stuff to paint. And of course, you know, the eyes, the mouse, a smile, which is very famous for La Joconde. And this is his, and he's, the guy is a genius. Now, 80% has been done by juniors. And we see the same, you know, with Ezio. We're not going to replace the medical writers. This would be completely crazy. But we are doing the heavy lifting. We are doing the 80%. We are doing the data crunching. We are doing the, you know, we are proposing all the statistical, you know, the demographic. We are doing the adverse events. We are describing that, you know. This is painful. The added value is there, but, you know, I mean, it's not a, it's really a machine can do that in a very elegant way. And he's focused on efficacy. He's focused on, you know, okay, what is the balance between the reverse events and the efficacy of the drug? It is his job. This is, this is where, you know, his skill is there. And there's no way a machine can do that. So we see our customers as the Da Vinci, you know, okay, we're going to help you to work more efficiently and really focus where you add in the most value and getting rid of all the, you know, all the crap, all the data crunching, all the, yes, yes, know, yes, which don't provide much value. So I don't think this is anytime soon the machine will replace, you know, it's completely crazy to have a machine. I know I've seen that, you know, AI doing some paintings or writing some points. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's pretty crap. Uh, it's my, my personal opinion. And actually, it's not at all our, our vision. Our vision is really to tell them, guys, you need to control the machine. And we provide you a tool for, medical, you know, for the medical writers, for our customers. We call that medical writer developers. You know, we're going to give you a tool. You need to master this tool perfectly so that it actually provides exactly what you want. You control the, 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 the machine, just like Da Vinci was controlling his team, junior team or whatever. So you see what I mean? So that's yes, very yes, important. Yes. And when they see that and they understand that, you know, you, you have won the, you know, and they completely, they're super happy and they see, okay, we love that. Because not only gains of time, but we still control it. It's still exactly what I want to produce. Now, instead of taking 20 days, taking me five minutes. Yeah, so I, 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 do, I actually do think the analogy is pretty strong. And again, for, for me, I, I just never say never simply because... Uh, Lord knows what the heck is going to be going on with AI 10, 20 years from now. But to your point, some things about AI doing, you know, all these magical things, some of that is is pretty clearly hoopla and just just kind of silly press releases. And much of this work, to your point, is I think can be we, we could talk about AI as kind of this digital servant, so to speak, doing the muck work that maybe Da Vinci didn't want to do in the same workflow that you guys are focusing on. And I guess this does take us into workflows here, Emmanuel, in terms of where you guys are seeing augmentation. Obviously, a lot of our conversations as of late have been around life sciences, where you guys continue to work with, you know, every time we have a conversation, you have some new big public company you're working with. So you're getting a lot of experience in life sciences. Can you walk us through an example of augmentation in the real world, where you're seeing this this augmentation take place, as you say, you know, pharma. By the way, we just announced a very strategic collaboration with Lilly, Eli Lilly, here in the U.S., where they see um, NLG and machine learning be applied in many play, you know, in many many areas of that company. 
and uh, which was, of course, great news for us. Even stronger traction in the in the pharma industry. The natural obvious spot is the clinical reporting, where and, and this is many documents. You know, you see the protocol, how we are going to design the clinical study, and then the CSR, then all the narrative associated to the CSR, then summary, and so on. So it's all chain of documents you have to produce. The more you advance in your in your study, you know. The different documents you have to you have to do you have to do that as on well, the quality on the um, you know the quality of your manufacturing you have to do that as well in preclinical so there is a massive amount of documentation analysis insights specific regulatory reports you have to yep. write and actually chaining all these documents together to avoid duplication is is something which is as well extremely interested Initially, we believed we could actually, well, I say automate, write a first draft only on 40% of all these documents, which was seen as, well, quite good. I mean, you say, all right, you can do 40% of all these documents. This would save us a massive amount of time. Now, the more we are investing and looking at that and applying new techniques like deep learning, we now believe we can actually produce a draft, you know, of 80% of all these documents so that, you know, and this would be a game changer. And this is, you know, more in the 18 months, it's still on the roadmap and working on that and so on. Yep. But what we see, the more we dig, the more we actually learn, the more, wow, we say, yeah, so much to still to be done. And, sure. this technology and this, you know, it's clearly it's in infancy. This is, uh, you know, the opportunity is really to be still to be created, which is super exciting. Yep, yep. But, you know, the way we write that, you know, there's a clear path for me to accelerate the drug to market, you know, by months. So we can really squeeze that. And this yeah. is super exciting to bring, you know, I mean, we have been working on some super important drugs in many areas, oncology, vaccine. Yep. And, and, you know, to be able to contribute to bring these drugs, you know, one month, two months, three months faster you know, it's super, it's great for the team and it's great for the people who are going to, you know, who are expecting these drugs. Pretty nice impact, you know, working on technology, but at least, you know, we provide something that uh, helps people to uh, live better, which is great. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, obviously in your guys' case, we're talking about the creation of these robust reports. People that are familiar with the life sciences space will know, well, number one, just how much of a priority speeding up drug development is or anything related to the efficiencies of drug development and the entire clinical trial process, just how slow, how kludgy, how painful it is, and things that can alleviate that. Big deal, big deal in that space. And I guess as kind of a closing note here, you know, you're seeing this augmentation come to life. You're seeing workflow time reduced. Very unlikely, you know, these folks would be doing these big multi-year contracts, these, these public companies with you guys, if, if they weren't seeing enough benefit to really want to jump on board. Now that they can produce a report in much less time, do they spend the rest of their time producing other reports? In other words, are we working on so many drugs that even if we're twice as effective, three times as effective, four times as effective, we still could just be doing reports all day long? Or do some team members start maybe even focusing on other things because you know they don't need as much time for reports as well? How are you seeing kind of workforces adjust to some of these augmented technologies? 
to do more. No, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, is to do more. I, mean, I think they have, uh, they have, well, the priority management is uh, is a headache, and this is true for many providers. It's true as well in the labs. I've been, yeah, just an anecdote. So I've been meeting with the customer and say, okay, in our labs, when we they do experiments, you know, they spend three days doing really the experiments and two days really writing all the report of, you know, how this work, what they have done, and so on and so on. This is, you know, I mean, this is crazy to have a researcher spending 40% of his time doing some just, just reporting. It is important. They have to do it. They have to record. It has to be, it's even a regulation. They have to do it. But this is crazy to have, you know, such high value research spending 40% of the time on reporting. If you can squeeze that to 10%, of course they can do more. Of course they can accelerate. You know, it's, it's all about acceleration and doing more. They could do you know, other drugs and other projects and other topics they, they would be interested to work on. It's clearly, uh, as you say, you know, doing more with the highly skilled team you have. That they have. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So yeah, I, I don't know enough about the inner workings of Eli Lilly to have any comments here, and I'm going to have to take your claims at, at, at their own value here, but specifically, really, uh, you know, talking about Eli Lilly. Yeah, it could be, could be anybody. I just meant a random pharma company in general, but it sounds like from what you're saying, and this is really interesting for me and hopefully for the audience, if a company, and we're not talking about any one company right now, but if a company in pharma is creating these reports more quickly, there is enough pipeline of those reports where they're definitely going to be able to stay busy doing reports because there's a backlog, there's priorities. You know, it's it's not something they're exactly going to run out of anytime soon from the way that you're describing it. You have got this big pharma with very large teams and so on. You have all this much smaller biotechs, you know, biotech company or biopharma companies, much smaller size, much smaller teams. And they are subcontracting most of this reporting to third parties, which inefficiency. And actually, this guy, the ask is different. If you're going to help us to actually insource this work so that the guy who is actually working on the research, on the you know, clinical, preclinical trial, he could actually produce that with the help of a machine. This would really allow the back and forth with third party where we have to explain where, you know, I mean, this is, uh, you know, not super efficient, I would say. Yeah. And there's a little pain. If you can help us to insource this task, this would be a massive efficiency gain for us. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So they're actually looking to get their hands on it. They, they don't want to hand it outside for these smaller biopharmas. They, they'd love to be able to say, okay, this is the person doing the work. Can we just... It sounds like they'd be able to potentially save money and time by bringing it in-house. Time, time is a, is time. a time. and they say you know this would save us time and pain. This would be just more, uh, much more efficient. Again, we just want to change. I think effectively using our technology, uh, if you want to use that effectively, is really you need to think. Okay, what change? How to change the way we're working for the better, for the good. And this is where, you know, I would say the successful recipe sits. Big time. And it, it sounds like that change is going to be different depending on the customer. And again, we've had some inter interesting interviews. Some of our most fun conversations for me have been the journey of what you guys have learned about user interface and getting adoption and, and, and really getting end users to use the product well. 
And to your point here, you know, what is a positive change? Maybe for a biopharma, they're going to have slightly different priorities. Maybe for a global firm, they're going to have different priorities. But for both of them, being able to make individual workers vastly more productive is a kind of a similarity. And I think in terms of an end cap for our listeners here who are tuned in, we started this interview thinking about other than FTE replacement, which is kind of a, a very one-sided way of thinking about things, how else can we measure productivity and how else can we measure the satisfaction of our people to really determine the results of our AI? So I think we've brought things around full circle pretty well here, Emmanuel, in terms of connecting the dots. And I'm glad we got in some use cases as well. I know that's all we had for time on this episode, but thank you for hopping on the show again with us. Thank you, Dan. Thanks a lot. And that is all for this episode of the AI in Business podcast. Thank you to Emmanuel for being able to dive in with us. I did like the focus on changing the metrics of success. I think that AI is often seen as a replacement in the adoption process. But as Emmanuel had mentioned, at least in terms of polling their own audience, enterprises tend to act and tend to be moved more by augmentation arguments than by replacement arguments. I think it's very hard to adopt technology when explicitly you're cutting headcount. Certainly these kinds of things happen, uh, but being able to think differently and think about productivity, think about employee satisfaction, think about other metrics on the get-go when it comes to AI adoption is arguably a better way to start. So I appreciate those insights. Hopefully for you as our listener, that was useful too. I mentioned reaching our audience at the top of this episode. You've heard many great clients here on the AI and Business podcast from firms as big as an IBM all the way down to smaller startups that are breaking into the U.S. market and specific industries. If you're looking to reach an enterprise executive audience, you can learn more about what Emerge does. Everything from webinars to email inclusions to custom research and more, including obviously podcast series, you can learn more at emerj.com ad1. That's ad like advertise and then the number one. That's where you can learn more about Emerge Media and download our full media kit. So if you want to get a sense of all the different sample programs from various other vendors who've worked with us, the kinds of results that they've gotten. You can learn all of that stuff at emerj.com slash ad1. I appreciate EasyOps supporting this episode, and I appreciate you as our listener as always. Thank you guys so much for growing the show in this last half a year. I look forward to having you with us in the next episode.